This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Prue Clark. Don't Look Up is a smash new movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence as exasperated scientists trying to get a narcissistic American president fixated on upcoming elections to give NASA the authorization to blow up an asteroid that will destroy the planet in six weeks if they don't. The news media is embodied by a jaded news anchor played by Kate Blanchett, who wants the scientists to lighten up and stop being so alarmist. The public, stupefied by their phones, reacts with a collective meh. The asteroid is, of course, a metaphor for climate change and the failure of governments and the news media to take the issue seriously enough. And it comes after my own wake-up call reporting in West Africa in December. It's a region I've covered for nearly two decades, and I was surprised to find people were already facing a food crisis that no one was reporting on. I came away feeling like those scientists, and my two guests this week certainly do too. Carl Pope joins us from New York, where he's the editor of the Columbia Journalism Review and co-founder of Covering Climate Now, which encourages news media around the world to step up their climate change coverage. Julian Cribb is an Australian author who's written eight books, including The Coming Famine and Poison Planet, which track what he sees as the existential crises facing humanity. He's also a former scientific editor for the Australian newspaper and co-founder of the Council for the Human Future. Welcome, Kyle and Julian. Thanks for having me. Hi, Prue. All right, so I wanted to start this conversation uh, by hijacking, as is not a good host thing to do. But um, as I mentioned, I was in Liberia and West Africa in December, and people there were already facing a food crisis. <laughs> 80% of the population exists on subsistence farming, and they were in their third year of unpredictable rainfall, hotter temperatures, and they weren't able to make enough or grow enough to feed themselves uh, through the year. So they're really facing a food crisis now. So on top of this, fish catches are shrinking. 10,000 people have already had to move because of rising sea levels. And this is a country on the coast south of the Sahara, which is growing south and forcing people to move. 
The region has the fastest population growth in the world. There'll be a billion people living there in just over two decades. There's relatively little international support for climate adaptation, but there's really only so much you can do in these extremely fragile regions with high levels of corruption and low capacity. So really the implications for food insecurity, political instability, mass migration are unimaginable. In fact, there have already been five coups in this region in the last 18 months. All of this was a surprise to me because you know, I hadn't seen it reported and I'm a fairly avid consumer of major international news media. So I was surprised by this. So we want to discuss in this conversation how the media is failing to cover climate change and these crises as they develop. But first off, Julian, I was hoping you can set the scene for us and, and tell us what is happening in West Africa and why audiences in Europe, the US and Australia should care. Well, it's another <clears throat> horrendous episode of hunger, driven principally by um, a combination of climate conflict uh, and COVID. Uh, all of those things are playing together to create, there's at least 13 food emergencies around the world. Liberia is one of them, but, you know, Congo, Afghanistan, uh, Ethiopia, Somalia, total of 112 million people facing starvation as we speak. So th this is a really serious thing. It's not just a one-off in one little country, in one little continent. It's a big thing. It's happening worldwide. It's not confined to Africa, but Africa obviously has the population pressures that make this somewhat worse. But, but nevertheless, it applies to all of us, you know. So even in Australia, we're starting to see big bushfires again. Uh, you know, so the impacts of climate are striking rural and farming communities around the world again and again and again. Drought is becoming far more common. The climate flicks from drought to flood. That's what climate change means. It doesn't mean more drought or more flood. It means quicker transitions from one to the other. And those are very hard for farmers to handle. That's what kills crops. You know, when you have a drought followed by a flood, followed by another drought, that is what disrupts the food supply. And everybody in the world is at risk now because if you disrupt the world food supply, it, it's one system, you know, it, it, it's the same system for trading wheat and trading corn and things like that. So the price impact hits everybody, even if the actual uh, hunger is taking place in Africa, the price impact comes out in the price of bread in Britain or Australia or Canada. So we've seen during the pandemic that um, supply chains are a major issue and, and even just with that global shock, there have been food shortages all over the world, including Australia. How would climate change impact that? Well, climate uh, change will, will primarily impact agriculture. I mean, agriculture is a Bronze Age technology. It's reaching its use-by date. We can't go on priming it with science any longer. Uh, we have to come up with new ways to produce food. That's the bottom line. We've got about 30 years to do it before the whole thing falls over. But we're starting to see it fall over now. So this is the message we want to take home to countries such as Australia, the United States, and so on, is that you are not safe. The whole human food supply is at risk. There have been plenty of famines in history. We know where they've gone. Uh, we know there have been lots of famines in China and India and places like that in the past. We're now going to start to see rolling famines. The more famine you get, the more people tend to fight over scarce resources of, of food, land and water. So you're going to have more conflicts, more civil wars, more international wars. So this whole thing is going to brew up if we don't put a stop to it now by securing the world food supply. How would that impact Australia's food security? 
in the first place, it will it will impact the price of food. So even though we grow a lot of wheat in Australia, our wheat price is affected by the world wheat price. So if you get a drought in Kazakhstan or Argentina, it affects the price of bread in Australia. Uh, so so Australians are not immune from this. The world economy is all joined up. So uh, you know the, the impacts are direct. But of course, we're starting to see our own horrendous climate impacts. We're starting to see more floods more droughts. We're in the middle of a La Nina, which is a, a heavy rainfall phase, uh, but we're going to go back into an El Nino, which is a drought phase. So, you know, we're going to see that cycling process becoming much faster, much steeper, much harsher. It's much more difficult for farmers to, to grow crops under that regime. So Australia will be affected, as will everybody else. Secondly, the world is running out of water. There is a water crisis in India, like you would not believe. There is a water crisis in China. Every country in the world that uses groundwater is running out of water. Every country, includes the United States, includes a lot. So basically, when we run out of groundwater, you know, there's going to be a shortage of bread. People are going to have to move. So you're going to see hundreds of millions of people starting to move out of countries such as uh, the northern part of India, uh, such as the northern part of China, and so forth out of the Middle East. The Middle East is completely out of water. North Africa is out of water. These are very large areas containing huge populations. And those populations are about to be unloaded on the world. Kyle, you were alive to this several years ago and, and launched Covering Climate Now. You wrote an op-ed at the time with the damning headline, the media are complacent while the world burns. Can you talk about the catalyst for that? And, and is the media still complacent? Well, I mean, just listen to what Julian just said for the last several minutes. I mean, this is this is a story um, unlike anything we've ever seen in our lives. And um, the catalyst was that the coverage was not reflecting the urgency of the crisis. And the, the role of journalism is to sort of see a little bit into the future, but also see things that are affecting people's lives en masse and write about those. And especially in the US, but really all around the world, the amount and quality of climate reporting was not matching the story. And that's the, that was the sort of beginning of this. And, and it really began with a question, like, what is going on? Like, there is no lack of drama here. And there is no lack of sort of life or death decision making. Why was the press not covering it like this? And again, the American press was behind the European press and even the Australian press. But um, everybody was sort of slow on the uptick. So we, we began by just writing about this. Like, why isn't this happening? Um, we looked at numbers that showed, you know, much more coverage of the royal wedding, much more coverage of the Kardashians, certainly much more coverage of domestic politics in the U.S. than what was going on. And we really started to try to get underneath that and understand why is this? And there was a few things that happened. One, we realized that a lot of news managers, especially in the U.S., viewed covering the climate crisis as a partisan political move. They thought that if they gave a lot of coverage to this problem, that their readers or viewers were gonna say, oh no, no, this is the sort of political thing and, and we, we want you guys to be neutral. And we actually put a lot of effort into saying like, we're not asking you to take a political stance, we're just asking you to cover the science. And we're just asking you to cover what is happening to people in the world. So that was the first hurdle. Then the next question was, well, it's depressing and people turn it off. And when we're in a fight for clicks or a fight for viewers, we don't want to devote attention to things that people are, people want to run away from. And again, it took a while, but we were able to show data that especially among 
younger viewers, this is not a topic that turns people off. In fact, it's something that, and it's not even a necessarily a depressing topic. It's an energize, it makes them angry and it energizes them, but it doesn't, they don't walk away. So what we did was we first wrote about it. Then we decided let's, let's gather people together, activists, academics, journalists, get people to talk about what the problem is. And then we decided to sort of take the next step and say, let's see if we can tie people together. Let's see if we can get people in the world who write about climate to talk to one another. So if you're in a part of the world that's affected by fire, you're going to learn a lot from talking to a reporter, even on another continent, who's also dealing with fire issues. How do you cover it? What's been helpful to your readership? What have people responded to? Same with water, same, all of this stuff. And what was also, what we really tried to do is give cover. What we found is that in a lot of these big news organizations, there were people, especially younger producers, editors, who really thought their organizations weren't doing enough in climate, but they were, they were bumping up against senior editors and senior producers who were saying, who had all these misconceptions. And what we wanted to do was, one of the things was to use an institution like the Columbia Journalism School, where CJR is based, to back them up and say, look, CJR says we should be doing more of this. Can we sort of join this and get moving? So we started out trying to get really local TV in the US to engage in this problem, because that's where most people in America get most of their information. There's also something interesting in that the most respected journalist in a lot of these markets is the local TV weather person. And they are also somebody who is, it's the closest thing to a scientist that a lot of people engage with in their media. We thought if we could get them not to make a big deal out of it, but just every time there's a, there's a major weather event, make the link to what's happening around the world with climate. Very simple. Anyway, we set this up, we started to do it. We thought, let's just see what happens. And it just took off. We now have about um, 500 media organizations that are part of this collaborative. It's the largest collaborative ever in journalism. It, 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 the, the combined audience of all these people is about 2 billion people. And it's everyone from Bloomberg and AFP and The Guardian and NBC News and CBS News, all the way down to very small um, news outlets. We get them together to have workshops about coverage. We, we do news making events. So, you know, we do an interview with Greta Thunberg and we make that information. We did that at COP and we make the interview available to everybody in the network so they have stuff that they can report. We have an information sharing thing where if you had an, a great climate story that you want to share with all 500 members for free, you can do that and make it available to them and give them this material. Um, and it's moved the needle. You know, the climate reporting is going up and it's getting better. It's really slow though. I still don't think, going back to my original point, I still don't think it, it aligns with the scale of the problem. One thing has happened though, that's been weirdly beneficial to this whole problem, which is COVID. Because if you think about what COVID is, it was a, it was a science-based story. It affected everybody. Nobody was immune. It forced news organizations to turn everybody into a COVID reporter. It doesn't matter if you were a local politics reporter or a course reporter or a sports reporter, you became a COVID reporter because it was affecting your life. And it, was, it became a model for us to, to show people like, look, this is what you need to think about when it comes to climate. You don't need to think about having a climate reporter. You need to turn everybody in your newsroom into a climate reporter because it's going to affect everybody. 
So I saw that graphic that Somani Gupta from the New York Times uh, tweeted on the weekend saying that there had been a doubling of the number of climate stories in the five major newspapers in America in the last three years. Of course, at the same time, we've had more catastrophic front page climate stories with great visuals, including the bushfire from Australia. Um, so, I mean, yours, it's working by the sound of it. Well, I think people can also look outside the window and they can, and I do think, again, like COVID is so important. Like one of the points that Julian was making so effectively is that you can't contain these problems. Like a crisis in one country becomes a crisis in another country very quickly. And people learn that with COVID. And it became very obvious. And I think I think that set off a lot of uh, light bulbs in people's brains as it relates to climate. Like, this is not going to be a problem that is going to be over there. And certainly that's been the case in newsrooms. Like they they've really come around to the idea that all that you know that all of this stuff is interlinked and it's coming for all of us. So there has been a lot of improvement. I mean, you know, there's still it's still quite politicized. I mean, we have like this enormous grouping of outlets from around the world. Not a single Murdoch outlet is signed on to this. They've all been incredibly resistant. And that those are big, those are big, as you know, in Australia, <laughs> those are big news outlets. And it just sort of speaks to how there is still this notion that this is something um, that's a partisan talking point issue, which is absurd, but it, it exists. Well, on that note of News Corp, Julian, let me come to you and ask how the Australian media is doing. Well, I'd like to make a broader observation about the media worldwide, because while what Kyle says is very encouraging to me, it's mainly happening in America. <laughs> you know, it's not happening in Russia. Also, also in Europe, Julian, Europe is, is there's a lot of progress. In to Europe. some degree. One of the problems is that the media has caught a terrible disease. Uh, I've been in the media since the early 1970s, so I've been there a, a while. Um, basically, over the last 10, 15, 20 years, the business model of the media has changed, right? It's no longer about information, it's about entertainment, okay? And part of that formula, part of that formula is that the media now, a segment of the media, significant segment in Australia and in the United States, actually, and in Britain, can make more money by spreading misinformation than it can by reporting the truth. Okay, it's got it's got a fixed audience share, a large number of people who lack any kind of you know discrimination in what they hear, who believe conspiracy theories willy-nilly. So those people are, are the fixed eyeballs on on uh, Fox News and and uh, um, you know these various trashy publications and and uh, broadcasting outlets. And that's how the, the, the media makes its money. It makes the number of eyeballs. It doesn't care whether those eyeballs are intelligent or not, right? It's simply the number of eyeballs defines how much money you make. So by spreading misinformation, climate misinformation, and misinformation about the nine other catastrophic threats that now menace humankind, you know, they're making their money by playing these things down, by basically spreading lies about the way the world is by entertaining, distracting, by focusing on the celebrities, as Carl mentioned, you know, by, by, by taking us in all sorts of other directions other than human survival. So these people are a danger to the human future. Let me tell you that, because they are lying to us on a constant basis. You find exactly the same talking point that was invented by the coal lobby 
you know, but you find it repeated throughout the Murdoch press by two dozen different commentators, the same talking point. It, it, it's conspiracy that is international in, it, in its, on its scale. You find the same talking point coming out of Republicans in the United States that you find coming out of Australian politicians and, and coming out of the, the, the Murdoch media here. You know, it's exactly the same line has been dreamt up by somebody in a think tank, maybe in the US, you know, and has been fed to all these people and then is being disseminated around the world. And it's a very dangerous thing because, as I say, these people are trying to distract the world from crises that can threaten every single one of us. All of us are affected by climate. We're not getting a fair coverage of any of them. And you're suggesting that's because of the short-term interests of fossil fuel companies? Well, no, no, I'm saying that a decent part of the media now makes its money telling lies. And if the fossil fuel companies are churning, they've got lie factories that churn out these lies. This media likes to just retail any old bullshit, basically, that is produced for them and fed to them. Uh, because that's what appeals to their audience and that's what gets their advertising revenue. So it, it, it's a horrid business. You know, it's a business of deceiving the human species about the reality of its plight. And I, look, I think this is an obvious question, but I think it's worth asking, why does it matter? Why do we need the population to be accurately informed? Most scientists now agree that we're looking at the collapse of human civilization within 50 to 100 years because of all these crises. And quite a few of them are now saying we're probably going to go extinct as a species because we will render the planet uninhabitable due to the amount of the heat and the poison. We will wreck the environment so thoroughly that we will not be able to survive um, as, as large mammals. So, you know, that's the reason. It, it's, uh, it's the biggest existential emergency that we've ever faced in our entire millionaire existence. Uh, and if we don't wake up to it soon, we're not gonna be able to do anything about it. We have time to do something about it. We can put the brakes on climate, you know, we can fix the water crisis, we can fix the food insecurity crisis and the global poisoning and all of those other things that are off the rails. But there is precious little being done about it because the media does not want to acknowledge those things. But how does this play out? You, you, you want to inform the public so they demand more of the politicians? I mean, there's only so much the public can do themselves, right? Well, I, I think politicians, to be honest with you, are emasculated. Uh, I've written about this now. Uh, no, national politicians, in fact, nations uh, are, are fairly useless objects in, in the world of the 21st century. And most nations are not going to exist by the end of this century. So, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing a transition in, in, in you know, the way we organise ourselves as human beings already taking place. Um, you know, it's too big for people to get their little heads around. Nothing that, say, a country like the US or Russia or China does can actually fix any of these global problems. Nothing that any single country does can fix those problems. It has to be done by all countries and all people working together. Now, we can't do that unless we're informed about those threats, unless we know what they are, how serious they are, and what we can do about them. At the moment, that is not happening. Carl, the coverage in America may well have improved, but uh, this is not um, playing out in what I'm seeing in West Africa. And, you know, there are correspondents, there are West Africa correspondents from The Guardian, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, but they cover 30 countries. And obviously, international coverage has suffered very badly in the downturn in the advertising business model. You know, if we do a great job covering climate change in our own borders, is that enough? 
Well, before I get to that, I mean, one, one point, I mean, I think Julian's right on misinformation front. Although I do think that there are increasing signs that audiences are attracted to this information. I mean, it's interesting if you, I, I was talking to somebody who runs one of the big global news agencies um, and they were saying that during the worst part of COVID, during the worst part, the only things that people were reading there were COVID stories and climate stories, which I found totally fascinating. If, so you are seeing, I mean, if you talk to the people at The Guardian in London, they'll tell you that the number one driver of getting people to donate, they put a little thing at the end of every story saying, please support what we do. The number one driver of that is, is climate stories. Now that's a very spe specific audience, but I do think that there are signs of hope here. You have places like Vox, and BuzzFeed and now this, which are skewed to young people, video content primarily, doing a lot of terrific climate work. Anyway, there's that. On your point about coverage in Africa um, and global coverage in general, one of the tragedies of the fact that this is all coming to a head now is that it's happening as the resources of journalism around the world is plummeting. The business model is extremely strained. Local news around the world is being uh, hollowed out. The amount of money for international reporting is declining. So um, we're, we're at this crisis point at a moment where journalism has fewer resources than it's had in a generation to report this story. That's just a fact. And there's not a lot going to change that business model in the foreseeable future. So what? It, so so it, you know, originally when we started thinking about this, our, our thought was, well, we need to go around and tell everybody to add a climate reporter. And we realized that's an absurd request. They don't have the money, and they're not going to do it. So that's where we came up with this notion, which I think is the right way to go, which is like re re brand essentially everybody as a climate, you know, basically take the team that you have and get them on this story because it does affect everybody. You know, Americans' interest in international news, and Prue, you know this better than anybody, is, you know, reached a low point during the Trump years. Um, and it's not, it's not improved much since. COVID offered a little bit of hope because people did see, you know, people became sort of obsessed about watching the map of infection travel around the world because they knew that it was coming for them. They knew that it was coming for them. Has it, have we learned anything about how to engage domestic audiences in these international stories? I don't know. I mean, we launched something that covering climate now called the Climate Journalism Awards. We did it the for the first time last year. It's really aimed at kind of raising, you know, and, and bringing attention to work that you might not otherwise see. We had submissions from all over the world. And the pieces that really resonated, and, and it comes down to really telling the story of people living these changes. I mean, it really comes down to just people's stories. It doesn't matter what country they're in, frankly. But I mean, one of the, one of the most resonant pieces that I remembered from this was a, it was a radio piece done by some indigenous reporters in Alaska. And they were writing about um, a tribe that depended on whaling, um, or they were reporting this on this audio piece. And the, and the piece wasn't a like, it, the climate crisis has affected the whaling business and here's what needs to be done about it. It wasn't a policy piece at all. It was like, 
I think an hour of just a, a series of conversations with people whose families have been wailing in that community for generations and generations and generations. And they just talk about the very minute changes that they are seeing every, every single year. You know, we used to be able to walk this far out on the ice and now we can only watch, walk this far. It wasn't trying to sort of sell anything. It wasn't trying to preach anything. It was just like, these are people who are living this and they're on the front line and it's affecting their life. I'd like to offer a slight touch of optimism to this, this rather grim comment. <laughs> um, basically, we are witnessing the most exciting and important evolutionary development in the whole of human existence. And that is the internet and social media. For the first time in our entire history, human beings are hooking up and exchanging ideas and exchanging thoughts and solutions to problems across an entire planet, right? We're starting to bury some of the old nationalistic, linguistic, cultural, religious, and other differences that divide us in favor of this, this model of the global citizen who thinks of the earth and, and uh, trying to make it a safe place for humanity. Uh, I see farmers hooking up with other farmers all around the world on working on regenerative agriculture. How do we farm under difficult climatic conditions? So, and these thoughts are traveling to and fro at the speed of light, right? So this is the exciting moment in history. This is the new media. So um, you've given up on the traditional media. Well, I haven't given up on them, you know, and, and as an old inky journalist, I'm very sentimental for them. I, I'm, I'm saying that this one is a worldwide one. People are getting more of their information, especially young people, from social media than they are from traditional media. Traditional media was part of the previously literate society. We're a much less literate society. But I do, I do think that there is a need, and we haven't even talked about Don't Look Up yet, um, but I do think that... Um, there is a need for kind of a new way of storytelling around this whole thing. I think, you know, th this whale interview, I thought was like, it was a great piece of journalism, but it wasn't a conventional piece of journalism. Um, one of the other pieces that won in this, in our competition was a piece about the Guardian where they got audio, they, they, used, they got audio of the sound of a, of, a, of a glacier moving. And you heard, you just listened to this audio for a while and that was the journalism. Um, so I think, you know, I think we need to be much more creative about the way that we're thinking about these stories. Um, and we need to be sort of much more inclusive about the kind of people who are telling these stories. Um, you know, so I think it's people and then the other role of journalism we haven't talked about, but I think it's powerful is, I mean, I think there has been this sort of falsehood um, that's been propelled in, in part by the fossil fuel business, but that, that this is somehow a, there's a villain here that it's like, the earth just, stuff just happened. Um, and I think this is a powerful vein for journalism to really show like, this is not something that just happened. It's something that people did. And it's something that big corporations made decisions around and that, um, and that they've been able to get off. Um, you know, there've been a series of lawsuits in the US where they're trying to hold big oil companies to account and they've largely have been unsuccessful. But I think, you know, I think the sort of um, discussion for instance, around tobacco um, changed dramatically um, in this country when um, we realized that there are actually villains in the boardrooms of these tobacco companies. One of the great things that we can do is sort of point the finger at people and say like, you did this um, and you need to be held to account and you should be angry at this person for doing this. And I think that's part of our job. The Guardian just had a terrific series called Climate Crimes that was sort of along this line, but I think there's a need for a lot more of it. 
thank you both for um, ending optimistically somewhat. Um, but <laughs> let's hope that you are right and uh, that uh, the Don't Look Up movie is, is not right and that uh, people just don't seem to care or that it's all going to happen far too slowly. So thank you for your time and, and let's check in again and see how this is going in a year. Great to talk to you. Lovely to talk. And thanks for listening. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Toby Hemmings, and executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. I'm Prue Clark. Thanks for listening.